Turn with me then in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 5. Is my practice in situations like this, not to cherry-pick sermons, but just to preach the ones I just preached last week. Now, last week we had Lord's Supper in uh, Wallenport. We have Lord's Supper on the second Monday, or Sunday rather, of every month. Uh, and so the Lord's Supper sermon is a little shorter. I didn't want to give you the wrong idea, so I thought I'd preach a longer one. Uh, so two Sundays ago we preached, I preached 1 Samuel 5 and Lord's Day 10, so that's what you're getting today. 1 Samuel 5 in my Bibles is found on page 421. We're going to read the entire chapter, keeping in mind what chapter 4 uh, reveals. The Israelites go into battle with the Philistines. They lose initially. They bring out the Ark of the Covenant, Eli and, uh, or Hophni rather, and Phinehas, two wicked sons of Eli. They were greedy sons. They stole the offerings. They stole women. They were wicked, wicked men. They bring out the Ark of the Covenant, and then Israel loses. The Ark goes into uh, captivity. Hophni and Phinehas die, and then so does Eli. And then the story picks up in chapter 5 in this way. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. When the Philistines took the Ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod arose early in the morning, there was Dagon fallen on its face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and set it in its place again. And when they arose early the next morning, there was Dagon fallen on its face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. The head of Dagon and both the palms of its hands were broken off on the threshold. Only Dagon's torso was left of it. Therefore, neither the priests of Dagon nor any who come into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. But the hand of the Lord was heavy on the people of Ashdod, and he ravaged them and struck them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how it was, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is harsh toward us and Dagon our God. For they sent and gathered to themselves all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be carried away to Gath. So they carried the ark of the God of Israel away. So it was after they had carried it away that the hand of the Lord was against the city with a very great destruction. And he struck the men of the city, both small and great, and tumors broke out on them. Therefore they sent the ark of God to Ekron, and so it was, as the ark of God came to Ekron, the Ekronites cried out, saying, They've brought the ark of the God of Israel to us to kill us and our people. So they sent and gathered all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it go back to its own place, so that it does not kill us and our people. There was a deadly destruction throughout all the city. The hand of God was very heavy there. And the men who did not die were stricken with the tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. As for the reading of God's holy word, may the Lord now bless that word to us and to our understanding. And brothers and sisters of our Lord Jesus Christ, it seems to me that when we think about the call to mission, the call to evangelize the nations of our world, we tend, unfortunately, to be a little too New Testament about these things. Uh, if I ask you, give me a passage dealing with missions, your 
mind would probably go right away to Matthew 28, to the Great Commission, as we call it. Although it hasn't always been called that, that's actually a recent invention or description of that text. For most of church history, Matthew 28 was not considered an evangelism text at all. And so if I said, you can't include Matthew 28, where else would you go to speak of the mission of the church? You might find yourself struggling. You might think, well, Jesus sent out his disciples to the cities of Israel. It's true. And you would look in the New Testament, undoubtedly in the gospel accounts, maybe in Paul's letters or the book of Acts, you would look for a passage that tells us to preach the gospel to the nations. Because you think, as do so many within the church today, that missions and evangelism are essentially a New Testament reality. And there is, of course, a great deal of significance to the events of the New Testament and the mission of the church. Jesus Christ's death on the cross, his ascension or resurrection and ascension into heaven, and then especially in terms of the mission of the church, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the church make the mission of the church not only possible, but fruitful. The Lord blesses the work of the church and its witness to the world. But the truth is, the church has always been called to mission, always been called to evangelize, always been a light to the nations, always been a place where the nations were to come and join with the Israelites, with the church of God, in celebrating God's goodness and grace in Jesus Christ. And when we fail to appreciate the mission of the church as it extends into the Old Testament, when we fail to understand how the Old Testament fits within the mission of the church, and we fail to understand passages like this one, 1 Samuel chapter 5. Now it's worth noting, it may be helpful for you to know, that in the book of 1 Samuel, chapters 4, 5, and 6 serve as a bit of a, a parenthetical moment, a, a parenthesis. You have at the beginning, of course, this story of Hannah, and she's barren, and she prays for a child, and the Lord gives to her Samuel. We know the story of Samuel. And in chapter 7, Samuel is going to reappear, and he's going to minister to the Israelites, and for a lifetime he will be a judge until he is older in his age. And then as his days come to an end, a king will be appointed. We know how that goes, Saul and then eventually David. But in between those events, the first three chapters of Samuel, which indicate the need for a new judge in Israel, and then chapter 7 and following the provision of a king for Israel, we find this little moment of chapters 4, 5, and 6 where we don't hear a thing about a king and we don't hear a thing about Samuel. His name's not mentioned in chapters 4, 5, and 6, beyond the first verse of chapter 4. And the reason for that is because the Lord is, is resetting his people, reminding them of what they are to be about. He is showing them how they are to live. And it's certainly not in the wickedness that we read about in chapter 2 and chapter 3 of Hophni and Phinehas, the wickedness of these men who rebelled against the Lord. It was to be in holiness. It was to be in such a way that the nations of the world would know who Jesus is. The Philistines in chapter 4 tremble at the sound of the ark coming into the camp of Israel, but they are trembling no more as our text opens 
They have put the Ark of the Covenant before their God, Dagon. The Ark had become for them a trophy of war. Proof of their God's superiority over any other God. Understand that for most of the history of the world up until very recently, everyone understood that God or gods existed. And there is always and forever competition between, between gods. Is the Islamic God, Allah, the God of power? Is he the one that blesses the people? Is the Buddhist conception of deity the right one? Is that the way to happiness and fullness? Is the Christian God the right one? This has been the question throughout all of history for all the world. And battles when they were fought were not just fought between armies, but between gods. So that when the Philistine army defeated the Israelite army, Dagon defeated Yahweh. And so Yahweh bows before the god Dagon. Dagon, who we know little about. We do know that he's the father of Baal and and he is the fertility God who blesses the land, who brings, or in the minds of the Philistines, blesses the land. We think he was probably a merman, that is, he was half man, half fish, sort of a Poseidon character, sort of, if you've seen the little, littlest mermaid or the little mermaid, then you know that her father was the god of the sea, and he had a triton, that three-pronged hook, uh, and he had a body of a man, and he had the bottom of a fish. Well, that's who Dagon was. Dagon was the bottom of a fish and the body of a man. And whatever the case is about Dagon, the Philistines worshipped him and gave him the glory due their God. They gave to Dagon, or not due their God, due the Lord of heaven and earth. When they worshipped Dagon, they ascribed to their God what only God of, of Israel, the God of Israel, could provide. And it was incumbent upon the Israelites to convince the nations of the world that that was the case. That they were worshipping false gods and that their God alone could bless. But Israel had failed in their own walk with the Lord. They had rebelled against Him. Hophni and Phinehas... Eli had failed as leaders in the church. They were no longer walking in the way of righteousness and holiness. No longer showing the world that God was to be worshipped. They were instead being just like the nations of the world. Treating God just like the gods of the nations. And so God goes into the home of Dagon to tell the Philistines that they are under judgment. And he does it in the most humorous of ways. The first time they show up the next day to see Dagon, the priests coming to offer their sacrifices and the like, they find that he has fallen from his perch and is bowed before the Ark of the Covenant in a position of worship. Dagon has been commanded, forced, pressed down by the hand of God to worship Yahweh. The priests quickly rush in and they pick up their God and put him back on his pedestal. Which is at least a little ironic, isn't it? That their God, who can be pushed down by the hand of the Lord, needs to be lifted up by the hand of his worshippers. Why can't Dagon get himself up and stand upon the ark or upon his pedestal? The next day they come in again. This time, the message is no less clear. Now Dagon's head's cut off, as are his hands, and they've been placed some distance away at the doorway at the way into the temple. They were trophies of war. You shouldn't miss that. 
Cutting off someone's hands, cutting off someone's head was a way of describing your complete victory over them. David will do it, for example, with respect to Goliath. David will kill Goliath and then first thing he does is cut off Goliath's head and walks with his head in his hand, demonstrating that he has been victorious over this giant. So when Dagon's head and hands are cut off, not only is the Lord making fun of this God, not only is he poking fun at the Philistines and their worship of a powerless, lifeless deity, but he's saying to the Philistines, I am the victor here, not your God. My hand accomplishes what your God cannot, for it is the hand of the Lord that is at work. And so the Lord is saying to the Philistines in the midst of their own temple, in the midst of their own house of worship, that I alone am the living God. I alone am to be worshipped. I alone am to be feared. That you must bow before me, the God of heaven and earth. Which is to say that the Lord here does what the church should have been doing all along. Announcing his sovereignty over false and deceptive religion. That's what the Lord had called His people to do in the Old Testament. That's what the Lord had commanded His people to be. A city upon a hill, a light in a dark world. They were to demonstrate by their lifestyle, by their walk, by their worship, that they had been delivered by the hand of God from the power of sin. And that they were free, not only from false religions... Not only from the falseness of the gods of the nations like Egypt and the Amorites and all the rest, but from the judgment that such rebellion produces in the lives of those who walk in this way. Thus it was that God had promised to man in the beginning a Savior to deliver the world. Thus the Lord had said to Noah that he was going to bring about the conditions for redemption that all the world might be blessed. Thus the Lord said to Abram, I choose you so that all the world might believe God from the beginning has had a global perspective on his work of redemption, desiring that all the nations of the world know that he is the living, loving God who redeems from sin and shame. That's why Israel was delivered from Egypt the way that she was. The Lord could have delivered Egypt in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. But he took ten plagues to teach the Egyptians, you must bow before me, I am the living God. He in all of those plagues called Pharaoh, called the Egyptians to genuine repentance and faith. Believe on me for I am the God who is righteous. And he planted Israel in the place of Canaan, in the crossroads of the nations, where all the nations of the world would come to see them, that they might learn as they walked through the land of promise, through the land flowing with milk and honey, that the God of the Israelites is the living God. That as they watched the Israelites relate to their spouses, relate to their children, do their work, treat their slaves, worship in the temple, that the nations of the world would go, this is a different people. This is a stand-out kind of people. This is a unique people with a unique God, a different God. The public nature of the ministry of the Israelites was to serve as a light to the nations of the world. Is that not what the Word of God has said already in the Old Testament? We heard that already this morning. You may not have noted it, 
But listen to how our call to worship was extended not only to the church but to the world. For it says, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples. Tell of all his wonderful works, says the Lord. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord, let us joyfully shout to the rock of our salvation, for the Lord is the great God, the King above all gods, says the psalmist. Let the Lord, the Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble, says the psalmist. Make a joyful shout to the Lord, all you lands, says the psalmist. We could go on and on and on. The Lord calls the church to be a light to the world. And at the heart of that call, that call to be salt and light within their communities and contexts is a spiritual battle between competing religious systems. I know we don't talk that way this day. I know our culture doesn't think in terms of competing deities. There are competing gods within our land. Whether there are political, economic, or emotional consequences to the differing religious systems, what we know is that the root cause of all these things is spiritual. That our Prime Minister and our Premier worship at a false God, a Dagon God. And what we know is that as long as we lead or as long as they lead the the nation and the province in the way of worshipping at these false gods, the people of our land will be led into judgment, into oppression and cruelty. The worldviews or religions of our culture are necessarily and forever cruel. Bringing oppression into the lives of those who worship them. And the truth is we can see it in the way that our neighbors live their lives. Maybe in our own lives we've experienced it as well. For we have maybe in our own lives pursued wealth and pursued popularity and pursued some kind of influence and value or power in our lives only to find ourselves discouraged and down. For the meaning of life, people of God, cannot be found in the accumulation of wealth. It cannot be found in the praise of every man and the fulfillment of all my desires. It can only be found in the glory of God and in the praise of the King. Thus, our world's progressive agenda, which makes perfect sense to those who worship at the foot of Dagon. The progressive agenda, the woke mentality of our culture, is a religious, spiritual mentality that worships at the foot of a God that is false. We are engaged, people of God, as church in a holy war. Not a word that the society we live in likes to use, but one that is nonetheless accurate and descriptive of the battle the church is engaged in right now within our society. We are engaged in questions of eternity and of spiritual significance. Just think of what's going on in our day in the town of Norwich. Maybe you don't hear about it here. Maybe you have. The town of Norwich during the month of June voted as a council, city council, not to raise the pride flag. And as a result, the media of the culture we live in, CBC and CTV and all the rest came down in their ways with their trucks and their reporters and they 
did their long stories opining about how terrible it was that these fundamentalist Christians were taking over this lovely bucolic town and how oppressed and fearful all the gays in this town who have never had a reason to be afraid in their lives are now trembling because, well, their city won't raise the pride flag. And as the Netherlands Reformed Congregation, all 1,400 of their members come to church each Lord's Day, they were greeted by women outside of their church, standing topless, waving the pride flag. Pride flags were painted on the streets. They were hung from all the buildings. And our society grieved over the oppressive, narrow-minded, misogynistic, and patriarchal mindset of the church. All of those arguments you understand are spiritual arguments. Do you not see how the gays and the same-sex attracted within our society subverted laws in order to gain their position? They violated the culture of their day in order to gain position. They put people in power in order to gain their position. But if anyone else does it, that is a violation of what is right and true and good. Anyone who speaks against that principle is to be canceled. It's to be excommunicated from our culture. For there is no forgiveness in the woke and progressive agenda. And it is into this spiritual warfare that the church has always been called to witness as a distinct and unique people. Oh yes, different ways in the Old Testament than in the New Testament. But united in this common expression and exaltation of our great and glorious God. The world must know from us, the church of Jesus Christ, that there is only one living God. That was Israel's failure during the days of the judges. That is Israel's failure throughout her history in the Old Testament. They didn't live distinctive lives. They didn't live genuinely Christian lives. They didn't surrender their hearts to the Lord for the commandments of God were written upon tablets of stone and not upon the tablets of their hearts. They couldn't live the way God called them to because they were wicked sinners. But Jesus has come. And forgiveness has been poured out. And the Spirit of Christ is upon all who believe. And the law is written upon the hearts of those who walk in true faith. So that we in this day can and indeed must daily take up the responsibility of witnessing to the world in the way that we relate to our spouses, raise our children, do our business, work with our co-workers, speak on the street, interact with our politicians, testify to our world. Jesus, or our Lord rather, uh, in this passage, testifies to the Philistines, I am the living God. Because that's what the church has always been called to do. And we are called to do it too. And we are called to do it precisely because of how serious the call is. Don't miss the humor of this event. Don't miss the humor of the psalm we just sang. Psalm 59. We're going to sing about some more of God's laughter after the message. But notice what we sang in Psalm 59. But you, O Lord, will laugh at them, those nations you deride. That laughter is not laughter of enjoyment. It is laughter of judgment. Psalm 2, as we will sing it after the sermon, reminds us that we are to kiss the Son lest He be angry in the way. For He holds in His hand an iron scepter by which He dashes all the nations to pieces. Judgment falls upon the ungodly, upon those who do not walk in the way of the Lord. 
And the church is called, the responsibility of the church is to witness. The encouragement we're given is in fact that Jesus Christ has all authority in heaven and on earth. And that he sends us into places like this, like our towns, like our homes, like our province, like our country, to say to the nations of the world, repent and believe. Our responsibility is to announce to the nations that they are under judgment, but that there is a way of escape in the blood of Jesus Christ. And we do that in our own lives by living Christianly. Do your neighbors know that you're Christians? Do your co-workers know that you're worshiping today? Do they see that your world is entirely under the command of Jesus Christ and directed to the praise of your God? Are your lifestyle choices, are your word usages, are your activities such that no one will mistake you for anything except a child of the Lord? Remember the Lord had, be it ever so briefly, left the Israelites to bring his glorious revelation to these non-believers, these Philistines, these non-church, non-covenanted people. Because the Lord doesn't need us to extend his kingdom. We need him. Are we showing by our daily living that God is our God and that we rejoice to know that he's living and loving? Indeed, we are to, call, to, to live our lives in such a way that others are drawn to the light like moths to a flame. Especially when they experience the judgment of God against their sin. Our text teaches us and shows us that the Lord goes into Philistia not only to say that Dagon's an empty God who cannot be worshipped, should not be worshipped, and has no power to deliver, but he is the God who has power, and he has power to condemn. After the comedy of the Dagon incident, things get a little more serious, and the hand of the Lord makes a rather significant appearance in this text. It's rather significant in this little parenthetical set of chapters, 4, 5, and 6, the hand of the Lord is mentioned in chapter 4, verse 8, chapters five, or chapter 5, verses 6, 7, 9, and 11, then in chapter 6 at verse 3, 5, and 9, and then again in chapter 7 at 13. The hand of the Lord, therefore, is a rather important word in this context. It's a phrase that is first found in our Bibles in Exodus 9, verse 3. It's associated with the fifth plague. One of the many, by the way, references connecting the events of chapters 4, 5, and 6 and the Exodus. And it is, you understand, that hand of God, a reference to the power of God to deliver. By his outstretched hand or his outstretched arm and his mighty hand, the Lord delivers his people. But in this case, that hand of God is a hand to oppress. We read that as the ark of God is stationed at various places in the land of Philistia, there come into the Lives of the Philistines, great destruction. They experience tumors, we're told. We're not immediately given a, a, an idea of what those tumors are. We think, we guess, because later on when they send the ark back, they send it with rats and tumors. They send it with rats that are sculpted out of gold and tumors that are sculpted out of gold. We surmise that it's probably the bubonic plague that the Lord sent upon this people. Rats and two mice carry the bubonic plague, and bubonic plague produces tumors. Tumors in the scripture, however, is not a medical condition as much as it is a condition of God's judgment against sin. Deuteronomy 28, the verses 58 and 60, we read that the Lord would use tumors as a judgment against wicked people for their sin. 
So that as the ark of God is now moved from city to city, the punishment of God rests upon the places it stays. Indeed, the punishment gets worse and worse as the ark is moved, as the people persist in refusing to understand what God's doing. In Ekron, a deadly panic breaks out because they know that the ark has been brought to them for judgment. The Philistines begin to learn the lesson that Israel was to be teaching them, that God's hand is heavy against those who rebel against him. And that his wrath rests upon those who refuse to believe in him. The Lord brings that to bear by his own power in the way that he orchestrates this event. And in so doing, the Lord here reminds us of who our God is. And why we so desperately need the finished work of Christ, our Savior. This is what so many in our world, of course, struggle to come to terms with. They don't like to read about the wrath of God against sin. Where's the tenderness? Where's the kindness they want to know? The Philistines didn't deserve this. They didn't know what they were doing. It wasn't their fault the Israelites let the Ark of Covenant go into exile. Our world makes its judgments apart from a knowledge of sin and of our need to live with the one and for the one who created us, who blesses us, and who claims us as his children and as his family. You see, therein lies exactly the problem of all men. These image bearers of God, these Philistines who were created by God, who were claimed by God, who were commanded by God to worship Him, were not doing it. They were not honoring the Lord who had made them. They didn't even know how to. They had chosen instead to rebel against Him, rejecting the God who was on display around them in all of creation in favor of a merman, in favor of Dagon, their idol god. That's why the judgment of God descends upon them. For never forget that the judgment of God in this life is always a call to repentance. You see, the Philistines were, even before this event happened, under judgment. They were living their days oblivious, nonetheless. They were living under the wrath of God. The only thing is, they didn't know it. They didn't know that their lives were rushing down the broad way of death and and condemnation. They didn't know that at the end, in the end, they would face the God who was angry for their sins. Israel was supposed to tell them. Israel was supposed to be the light that said, people, you are headed to judgment. Join us in the grace of God in Jesus Christ. But Israel was busy worshiping their own idols. Not telling the nations of the world their need of a Savior. And can you imagine how cruel that is? Can you imagine going to a doctor who says to you, oh, there's nothing wrong with you, you're perfectly healthy, when he knows that you're struggling with with stage one cancer, something that could be healed if you just came to him for treatment, but he doesn't want to say it. It's not until it's stage four and now you're very sick and you get a second opinion and the second doctor says, I don't know why the first guy didn't tell you that you were dying from sin or dying from from cancer. So it is in our relationship with our neighbors and our co-workers and all the rest. To our children and our friends and our families that are living in unbelief. To not tell them is the greater cruelty. 
And don't misunderstand, the Lord could have simply wiped Philistia off the face of the earth and been done with them the way that he wiped Sodom and Gomorrah off the face of the earth. He could have dealt with Philistia in his wrath and never once concerned himself with their repentance or restoration to him. But our God is a God of grace, a God of love, who desires that all men should worship him. And so he afflicts them so that they might repent and believe in him. The Philistines were being shown in no uncertain terms that the Lord was to be taken seriously and that he demanded and claimed their obedience for him. This was only, of course, a warning shot. It was a painful one, undoubtedly, and people died as a result. But it was nonetheless a call, a call to all of those blind, hard-hearted, dead sinners in that place. that There was hope, and there was life, and there was a way forward. This, too, is the call of the church, who with tenderness and kindness... There can be no judgmentalism in the church. There can be no looking down our nose at our unbelieving friends, family, and neighbors. We cannot say we're better than them. We're not God. We don't get to punish them. We don't get to say, well, if we make their lives miserable, maybe they'll turn around. That's not our job. That's God's job. But we do get to warn them. We get to speak a word to them. We get to say to them, you must turn from your sin." Do you not see why your marriage is breaking apart? Do you not see why you're struggling with the pointlessness of life? Do you not see and understand why there's disease and destruction in this world? It is because God's hand is against us. Now this means, of course, applying it to our own lives, first of all. Warning not only church members of their waywardness when they walk away from the Lord, but warning our own family members as well. There are those that we know in our life, children, friends, whoever they are, that have chosen to rebel against God and deny the one who covenanted with them in their baptism. It's our job to be kind. And we are kind when we say, you're under judgment and there's a hope, there's a life, there's a cure. Don't do that with petty matters. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not suggesting that we get into people's business and become busybodies. It's about those who are living in sin. It's those who are living in unbelief. We need to call them to genuine repentance and faith. But it also means standing up to our culture. It means standing up to the prevailing spirit of our age. And saying enough's enough. This is wickedness. Our culture may defend and justify sexual immorality, greed, dishonesty. It may promote the use of drugs and and of all all manner of ways in which we can avoid the realities of this fallen world. But we, the church of Jesus Christ, must at least be willing to tell the truth. To stand up in the midst of this culture and say enough's enough. Do not listen to your spiritual leaders. Do not listen to your academic and your political leaders. They are leading you into judgment. Listen to the word of God in Jesus Christ. You're under judgment because you're wicked. Turn and believe. It may seem to us a difficult thing to say. We don't like to say it to our own family and friends, let alone to our neighbors and our co-workers. There is a seriousness to the gospel that we all need to embrace. It needs to be the reason why we're here today. That we haven't come to worship today 
because we just need God to improve our lives a little, to sprinkle a little fairy dust on them so that we can be successful in our business or in our marriage or whatever else there is. We need to be here today because today is the day of our salvation. Because we're sinners in need of a Savior because we understand that there is a judgment that is coming and that it is appointed once for a man to die and then the judgment. And therefore we flee to find our rest in Jesus Christ. We come under the cover of our our King and Lord. We are here because we know that we're sinners in need of a Savior. And if we know that about ourselves, then how can we withhold that from our neighbors? How can we fail to speak to our loved ones about their need of Jesus Christ? See, when we fail to connect mission with the Old Testament... We fail to appreciate the call of the church to evangelize. There is much that goes by the name of evangelism in our culture and in our context today. But it's devoid of the truth of what God reveals in all of his word. Well, there's a lot of talk of love and God's love for you. And that's good because God does love. He is patient and gracious and kind. But it is a call that comes after the serious revelation of our need for that love. And if the church won't hold that message out to the world, then God will put the church behind him and go himself to do it. That's what happens in 1 Samuel 5. The Lord's Lord's powerful hand presses his righteous claim upon the Philistines, upon the people of Dagon, for he would see his children enslaved to the darkness of sin, delivered into the light of his son, Jesus Christ. God is committed to winning the world. Now we have to ask, are we? Let's come before the Lord and ask Him for that.